0: not proud but-
1: And welcome to the bubble hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my recently released poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I'm holding space for a guest who is Kate Russell. Now, Kate has recently created a memoir, and it is called Down the Rabbit Hole, a memoir of abuse, addiction, and recovery. And Kate joins me
2: today. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, I'm glad that you're here, and it's nice to be back. I was just telling you I was on vacation for two weeks, Mm -hmm. and um, to me, this feels more like vacation than what I just did for the last two weeks. (laughs) I'm always so happy when I'm at my computer and connecting with my friends in recovery, so I'm glad to be chatting with you today. Yay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's jump right into it because I know that you are prepared to share your story and I've spent uh, most of the weekend reading your book and so I feel really close to you even though this is the first time that we've spoken in person. So um, let's get to know you, Kate. Tell us okay.
2: about yourself and tell us your story. Okay. So um, yeah, I'm Kate Russell. Uh I wrote a memoir I was about two and a half years sober when I started writing this book and you and I have about the same amount of time I just uh, got nine years in um, in July uh, and uh, yeah and I you know I always knew I was gonna write a memoir my my story was just too juicy to not share. Uh, when I was little, um, I was born, I believe I was born with this disease. Um, my mother drank and did cocaine while pregnant with me. So I guess it's a miracle that I'm alive. Um, and so I think I was born with that gene. Uh, and and my first drug of choice was sugar. Um, and yeah, when I, so I'll, uh, It's what it was like, I'll just try to stick to our 12 step format, which is what it was like, what happened and what it's like now when, um, you know, I, <laughs> I needed a drug long before I found a drug. So I would find drugs in other, in other outlets, such as sugar, sugar, fantasy, um, as just escaping into my own head, which is later what I would identify as falling down the rabbit hole. But we'll get to that. Um, you know, uh, I I needed um, I needed a, a reward for live for being subjected to a life of abuse. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was my parents drank and did drugs. Um, they would leave me and my sister home alone. I ended up having to be her mother. She's five years younger than me. Um, and, and, you know, and I, I used things as rewards and, you know, the addiction centers in the, re, in the reward center of our brain, um, that's where it lives. And so we need a reward. And my first reward that I found was sugar. Um, you know, and I became an overweight child and that would go on to be a lifelong struggle as well. Like, a you know, just weight struggles, eating disorders. Um, but, You know, it's interesting that I, um, I remember watching, so when I, you know, when you were in elementary school and they would show you these like made for school, uh, almost after school specials, but like with little lessons, like don't. Don't do drugs, drugs are bad, that kind of thing. I remember they showed us this one where these kids took a hallucinogen and they and then like it got real trippy, like the screen was, you know, blurry and stuff, like whoa, like waves, like so you could see from their perspective as they were like, whatever, dropping acid. I was obsessed with this video. And so I was maybe I was in element, this was elementary school. So I was what, like eight, nine? I was a kid, I was young. And I remember I loved this video so much that I rented it. And at that time from the video store, you could rent these after-school specials, these, uh, made for school movies. There was like a little teeny tiny section of the video store and you could rent them for free because it was like, Oh no, these are educational. Like they're free. Um, and I would rent it because I loved watching the kids perspective when they got high. And so isn't that telling? Um, Meanwhile, I'm addicted to sugar and you know and I'm a fat kid and I'm being bullied and I'm ostracized at school and I'm ostracized at home and I'm my mother my sister's mother and, and life is not good. Well, fast forward to when I finally find drugs and alcohol I was 16. And my first drug of choice, now my mother and father, cocaine and alcohol, that was their thing. And my mother, when she, uh, would drink, she would get very evil. She was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, my drug of choice, what the one that I found first was pot and it was okay because it wasn't alcohol and it didn't make me become mean. It made me become, Productive, which I know is not the usual response that people have when they smoke pot. They get real lethargic. Not me. I became a doer. <laughs> it, it, pot saved my life for probably about two and a half years. It worked really well. Um, once I smoked pot, I started smoking it every single day. I went from getting C's and D's in school to getting A's and A pluses. I became driven. I became focused. I decided I was going to go to college. Um, I went on to, I was in a performing arts high school and, um, I got cast in both of the the plays. I did, uh, went on to do thorough character breakdowns for each role. I was like super, my super type A personality revealed itself up until that point, up until I was sixteen, before I found pot, I was kind of just a lost little girl. I was just flailing. I didn't, I didn't know. I, I had these big dreams. My my dad is a stagehand, and so we toured with um, Les Mis and Miss Saigon my whole childhood. So um, I wanted to be an actress, but I had no idea how to do that. You know, I and 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 it was it just seemed like a pipe dream. Like this is not tangible. Um, and when I uh, started going to this. Performing arts high school and smoking pot, everything aligned. And I was like, oh my God, my dreams are tangible. I this is doable, and here's how I can do it. And oh my God, what a wonderful drug this is. And oh my life is so beautiful. It really just did a 180. And I would say that that beautiful, manageable, as we say, um time lasted for about two and a half years um throughout high school. Um and In that time, I would say, so, so because, and because it was pot and back then, oh, this just shows my age, but word on the street was pot is not addictive. Um, and I believe that because it suited me. Um, it fit my narrative. and And so I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not addicted to pot. But so that just shows how much I knew about addiction because I was smoking it every single day. And if my friend actually, she was like, maybe you should try to like go a day or two without smoking. And I got super defensive and I was like, Nope, it it, it helps me. Um, but you know, uh, so there you go. Um, but, I was like, no, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. My mother is, she's the one who, you know, she gets blackout drunk. I get productive. I clean my room. I'm soup no, this works for me. And, um, there you are. Right. So there we go. That defiance that sort of, uh, uh, it's so common amongst us addicts. So, uh, so then I go to college, right. And then I would say that's when the consequences of my using started to pile up. Um, Oh and meanwhile I would drink whenever alcohol was around but it wasn't a constant. Um you know in college especially um alcohol becomes you know more uh, uh, you you can get it easier and I I would say every time I every time I drank I blacked out. I did very uh, embarrassing things uh which you can read about in my book. No but um you know as we all do um you know things I never would have done if I was sober, you know. Uh and then, but I just, I just thought it was college. I was just like, oh no, this is what everybody does. Right. And I really believe that that's what everybody was doing. But now, you know, when you get sober, the smoke clears and you, you do, you see things clearer and I can look back and say, oh n- no, I was a mess pretty early on. And I didn't know I was a mess for a long time. Okay. So, <laughs> so, uh, there we are. We're in college and, um, I'm, I'm fighting for the manageability to, uh, remain. Um, meaning, um, I, I was, so in actuality, I was becoming more and more paranoid, more and more withdrawn, lonelier. Um, you know, these, like your drugs turn on you, right? Um, and so this drug that had once made me really social or really, you know, uh, a, a, a very productive doer, not, not afraid of people now was doing the opposite. I was afraid of people. I would hide out in my room um, and I would just say, oh, I'm busy. I'm working because I loved my productive stoner title. Um, and so I just kept tried to keep that going. And, you know, and I did, I. I, I was still very productive. I, you know, but it, but at the same time, you know, what, when, when we, when I finally got sober, I came into the rooms and what I heard was the one thing that we all have in common is the God shaped hole inside of us. Now I did not know that that is what I had. Um, but in hindsight I can say, okay, that's what it was. Um, because I, felt lonely. I felt alone. I felt ostracized again. Like I felt like when I was a bullied little kid, you know? So there we are. We're in college. We graduate. Um, and then, at some point, and then of course other drugs are pe- peppered in the speed because you know the eating disorders because you know I was a fat kid and all this, and so there's still that undealt with demon and you know and so oh okay this helps me lose weight and oh I got really skinny and I'm really lucky I didn't die because of all the the combination the cocktail of drugs and then also like so I was introduced to ephedrine, um, which is illegal now. Um, uh rightfully so, in college and I used that to lose weight. And uh at the end of my using that, I really thought I was about to have a stroke or a heart attack. Like my I was up to sixteen to twenty pills a day. Um and ephedrine is also known as mini thins or trucker speed. You could you used to be able to buy it at uh like like 11s or a little convenience stores and truckers would use it because they'd have to be driving all night, you know? And so I would take like 16 to 20 pills a day. And sometimes they would make me so sick that I'd throw up and I'd still take them every single day because they helped me lose weight. My, my heart rate increased so much that then I have to start smoking pot at one o'clock in the afternoon, you know? So here we are just trying to manage, manage, manage. Right. And then, you know, and then meanwhile, I'm out of college at this point. So drinking, and so I'm over 20 one so I can buy alcohol. So, so, um, so that becomes more frequent. Um, and, oh God, it would just, you know, I'm becoming a mess, just becoming a mess. Um, I really fought to make my using fun and manageable for a very, very, very long time. I was really sure that I could do it. Um, when I'm, so, I graduated college. I moved back home to Connecticut for a few years because I wanted to be with my grandmother in what I thought were to be the last few years of her life. Turns out she she could really hang on. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles when I was um, 24. And uh, when I moved here, I started dating a guy who just flat out told me, I don't like that you smoke pot as much as you do. I was keeping my ephedrine addiction secret from him. And and I but I was I loved him and I was really lonely when I moved out here and so I really really wanted to make this relationship work. I mean, I thought we were going to get married. Um and so I was like, "Okay, let's" and I knew. I knew he was right. I knew I had a problem. And so I was like, "Okay, Well, he, he was like, um, you know, let's, have you ever tried to manage and control your pot use? And at that point, I mean, I was, I was an all day, I was a everyday smoker from the time I started when I was 16. So I was like, no, I don't think I can suddenly start not smoking pot every day. No, I I can't do that. That's crazy. Um, And he was like, well, let's, let's try. And with his help, I somehow managed to go from smoking pot every day to going to smoking it twice a week. So that kind of, so that slowed down. Well, anyway, I, I started managing and controlling it because I had a babysitter now twice a week is still kind of a lot. So (laughs) meanwhile, at some point I quit drinking for like nine months and then I picked that up again because you need something, right? Um, but I was managing and managing and controlling it in a way that seemed suitable for him. So it was therefore acceptable to me. Um, and I was with him for almost five years. And so for about like four out of those five years, and because we lived together and I didn't lie to him, I controlled, you know, I smoked pot twice a week. And then I, when I would drink, I would never have more than two drinks. So this was my, my mid twenties. And, I started to think maybe I'm not a drug addict. Like, look at me. Look at me able to suddenly do this. Okay, sure. Fast forward <laughs> to we break up, and I try to keep those rules, and I can't. So, what happened was we broke up, he moved out, and I decided, or my disease decided, that I was going to have a party <laughs> and I was going to allow myself to do whatever drugs, um, i.e., cocaine, um, I could get my hands on and just have a big fat party for about six months. And then I was going to go back to uh, controlling and enjoying my using. Um, that was the plan. And uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, no, you know, you, you make rules for yourself and you break them. And that's exactly what happened. I had a party. Then I was like, let's go back to, you know, controlling it twice a week, smoking pot, no more than two drinks. And I would what I would do was make it, I would, I would change my mind, but it wasn't me changing my mind. It was my disease changing my mind. So around, you know, that I'd wake up. Okay. Today it's, it's no, no smoking pot today. That's, that's it. I can have, I can have two drinks, uh, but you know, that's, that's it. No, you know, and then five o'clock would roll around and I would say, well, you know, it's my day off. Like who cares? Who cares? Right. Like it's, I'm independent. I'm look, all I'm going to do is smoke pot and clean the apartment. All I'm going to do is smoke pot and, um, you know, learn some lines for an audition. All I'm going to do, you know, who cares? And I got defiant and I got, um, you know, really just, uh, you know, you know, as we do, I was making excuses so that I could use. And, But I knew deep down. Meanwhile, my mother died of alcoholism when she was 49. I was maybe 27 when she died or 20, maybe I was 29, 28. I don't know. So meanwhile, you know, she dies at 49 from alcoholism. Her liver failed. And I. so I knew, I mean, I knew that I was an addict and that I I knew that I wasn't changing my mind. My disease was changing my mind. And that was sad. And that's really what brought me to recovery was that I was sad. I amazingly never got a DUI. I don't know how. Um, but you know what? If I had had to come into a recovery on a court card, I don't know that I would have stayed because it wouldn't have been on my terms. It would have been suddenly taken away from me. And I don't know. But who knows, right? Um, I do see people come into recovery on court cards and stay sober. Um, so it can be done. But for me, I am very, very grateful that I never got arrested or put in jail for the many, many times that I drove under the influence. It's a miracle that I didn't hurt someone or myself or, you know, get caught. Um, And it's a miracle that I'm alive. Uh, You know, like I said, I used to take 20 pills, speed pills a day. Like, how did I not have a heart attack or a stroke? Um, So, you know, I, 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 the thing we have in common is the, is the God shaped hole. Right. And I was sad. I I was sad that, that I, I was not in control and I knew it. I was sad that this was my life every day. I was making rules and then breaking them. And I knew, and I just had this very strong faith that, Recovery is going to be better than this, and it's also going to be easier than this. Um, you know, I remember I, I was so, so trying to muscle my way into manageability. I was like, okay, two, two, I'm only smoking pot two days this week. That's it. And I did it once out of like maybe, I don't know, nine weeks, eight weeks. I, I was able to do it one week. And I remember thinking, that was so hard. I don't think I can do it again. And yeah. And I I just knew that it would be easier to get sober than it would be to continue to try to control and enjoy my using. So I came and, you know, and I think there are no accidents. Um, meanwhile, I became friends with a girl who would become my Eskimo. She was 12 years sober at the time. And I just couldn't believe that because she was young and she was fun. And I really admired, and really, I could not, imagine how she got through her life without ever picking up a drink or a drug. Um, and she did, and I wanted that. And so I, that was it. I, I, nothing, it's like, what happened? Well, what happened was I was sad and I finally surrendered. What happened was I surrendered. Um, And I, I called her up and I packed up my paraphernalia and the rest of my, my drugs and alcohol gave it to a friend and went to a 12 step meeting and, and the rest is history. So, you know, and I would say, and when she came, she came over that day and I was crying because I just knew this is it. I, I, you know. I, this is it. You know, I, I knew I got to get sober. My mother had been in and out of AA, you know, my whole life, not in in and out in that she would like dip her toe in the waters of AA. She would like go to a meeting and then come home and drink and then like spout off all the wisdom she learned. Um, but I knew that it existed from a very young age. So, you know, that was, the seed was planted when I was very young. So I knew, and I remember my mother even saying, like, if you want to get sober, you know, that the 12 step way is the only way. And so I kind of just had that in my head and, um, that's how my, my Eskimo did it. She did it through 12 step. And so I, she was like, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up every day and pray. I want you to read a page out of the daily reflections and underline something that pertains to you. I want you to pray just for the 24 hours ahead. I want you to go to a 12 step meeting, get phone numbers, call people, get a sponsor, start doing the steps. And then at night, I want you to pray again and say, thank you. And so that's what I've done for the that's what I've done. Um, I, let's see at this particular point. So now I'm nine years in, um, I, uh, I go to maybe two meetings a week. Um, I have a sponsor, I have sponsees. I try to do the 12 steps every day. Um, in that it, it's it becomes easier once you get through them once to just do them every day. Cause you're just sort of doing them for the past 24 hours. Um, I am doing a very strong, uh, 11 step nowadays, um, which is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. Um, there is a, a wonderful book called, um, Uh, the abundance, the abundance book. And in it, there is a prosperity plan. And what I've found that to be is an 11th step. Um, There's little verses and stanzas that you talk to, you basically just affirm um, that God is within you. God is uh, working through you. God is working in your favor. um, and And he wants, he wants what you want. And so it's a little bit like the secret, um, let's realize it into being sort sort of, um, let's just say, thank you. Let's be grateful. And so I do, I do that. And it has been, it's been great. Cause I think, you know, we think things and then when we're forced to write them down or talk them out, we realize we don't know anything. Um, and that's why I think the steps are written. And I think it's, so important. And I think it's so important to, to put the pen to paper and, you know, writing the book was, was super healing. And I didn't do it for that reason. I just thought my story needed to be told because as this child who grew up in an abused home, you know, with abusive parents, I made it out, you know, I made it out and I, and I went on to really overcome quite a bit of trauma and, and, and become happy, which is really, what I always just wanted. I just wanted to be happy. Right. And I was sort of stuck in an unhappy situation for, you know, 18 years. And then, but I, but there, you know, there's always, there's always a way out. Um, and it just, you know, the, the healing process, the spiritual process, the recovery process has been like such a gift and so beautiful. And it's not that difficult. I've found it's really I look forward to my practice. You know, I look forward to this eleventh step that I get to do every day. I, I would look forward to writing the book um, because I maybe I maybe a part of me knew, oh, this is super healing. Um, you know, this is really this is this is this is going to help people. Uh, you know, my story is not that unique. I think that a lot of maybe, maybe the circumstances are somewhat unique, but the feelings that I went through are not unique. And that's what we all have in common. Those of us in recovery, I feel like when God, when you go to a a 12 step meeting, or you're just fellowshipping with others in recovery, the, the amount of nodding that we do, (laughs) you know, together, it's like, yes, yes, I understand. Oh my God. Yes, me too. And isn't that so beautiful that you just know that you're not alone. You I I felt alone for so much of my life until I started recovery and then I realized, "Oh, I'm not alone at all." You know, it's just a matter of opening up and sharing and really getting out the truth, you know? My head tells me so many lies. And then when I really get out the truth and I really get to the bottom of things, um, I really see, Oh God, we're not that different at all. Are we, we all, we are, we're all either in love or in fear at all times right now, the sponsor I'm working with, and I love her so much. Um, she, uh, in, in the doing the 12 steps every day, she says, um, uh, well, so what is the fear? She doesn't even want to hear about what the resentment is. She just says, just tell me who you're resentful at and then let's get to what the fear is. Um, and isn't that true? And like, I didn't I didn't understand that, of course, at first, because everything's new when you um, get sober and you're like, what? What is all this This gobbledygook? What is all this? <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying. And then you start doing it and you're like, oh, okay. Um uh, you know, it's like, what, what is, what is the fear? And we're, we all kind of have the same basic fears that we're, that we're going to end up dead. We're, we're going, I'm going to die. <laughs> like I'm going to be, I'm not going to be able to do it. And it's gonna, it's gonna kill me. I, you know what it's, I'm going to be alone. I fear being alone because I fear that being alone means, you know, I'll want to die. I'll it, you know, it just is like basic, like just these fears that, you know we're that we're gonna be ultimately not okay, and ultimately we we are gonna be okay um yeah i um i i just i i had no idea. What sobriety was going to be like. I had, well, I had an idea and it's been nothing like that. (laughs) I thought I was going to get sober and the universe was going to start rewarding me. I did. And I didn't know I thought that until it didn't happen. And I was mad and I had to be like, what's the matter? Why am I mad? And it was like, oh, I guess I thought I was going to get sober and God was going to start showering me with gifts. I really did think the cash and prizes were going to happen like really, really soon. And It hasn't been cash and prizes. It has been spiritual gifts. It has been a happiness that I have never experienced before and and now experience most of the time. But it took time and it took work. And I will say I am not a naturally patient person at all. But through practicing patience, I have become patient. and isn't that what we learn in in recovery as well that like oh through the practice of things through the doing our our minds our minds change it doesn't work the other way around we don't change our minds and then change our actions we change our actions and then our minds change and that that has been a constant uh you know truth um that yeah okay so It might not look like what I thought it was going to look like, but it does look beautiful and I couldn't be more grateful for it. And, you know, it's like, God, when I came in, people said, okay, hang on. It's going to be a wild ride. And I would say, yeah, yeah, it is not the ride I was expecting, but it is a beautiful, beautiful ride. So with that, I guess I will, I will end and, uh, Yeah, I I miss you, Gene. I hope I didn't put you to sleep. (laughs) Oh no, not at all. Um,
1: I love what you said about thinking that there would be, you know, the crown, the prizes, the the cash rewards for doing this good thing of getting sober, especially for you after a lifetime of witnessing addiction and alcoholism and abuse from your parents and, and where it led to them thinking that there was a rainbow if they would have only gotten sober and that you were going to claim that for yourself. Yeah. Um, and I wonder sometimes, um, does your mother show up for you in other ways in recovery as either an inner critic or... Or do you have, like, a running conversation with her in any way? I know for me, after my dad passed away, I still, you know, I still kept kind of working on the things that we never got to resolve. And having, I don't know, I feel like that relationship still kind of managed to grow and heal in its own way. What has that been like for you as you move through your own healing is there
2: is there a resonance of that relationship or you know what happens point, the the inner critic voice is my dad um yeah. and he's still alive but we don't have a relationship um my mother you know before i even got sober i had begun to forgive my mother because i was becoming her and i just started to see That my thought patterns, my way of operating in the world, my, the way that I was thinking, I I thought mirrored the way that she thought. And I, you know, it's... I, I started to just naturally forgive her for the years of abuse because I saw that she's just a really, really, really bad alcoholic and she was really sick really, really early. Um she had me when she was twenty and she was a I never knew her as anything other than a nightly blackout drunk. Um so she was real sick real fast. And she wasn't evil, she was just an alcoholic. And 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 the end of our uh at the end of her life, she we didn't have a bad relationship. We didn't have much of a relationship, but when I would see her, cause I was across the country, um, But when I would go home to Connecticut, she would always find a way to insert herself in my path. And, um, she was always very nice, very pleasant, you know, she, and she, she just her, everything declined and I could see that physically with her. And I just felt more, I felt sorrier for her every time I would see her and I could see the loneliness and I could see that she was, she was not going to live, you know, if she continued this way. And I knew she was. She just, she just always wanted to be uh, drunk. She didn't want to get sober. That was never, you know, but it was sad and lonely. And so feeling so bad for her, I just forgave her. I just saw it. God, this is beyond her control. It's so beyond her control. Um, but the inner critic voice is my, is my father's voice. And that may be because he is still alive and we have so many unresolved issues. I've tried. Oh, and that's one of the last chapters in the book. It's a good one because, um, oh man, is he unwilling to change? Is he unwilling to do anything even to, so we don't have a relationship because he is so unwilling. He's unwilling to say, I'm sorry. I mean, that's really all it would take, you know, just a little, I'm sorry. And a little, I, I promise to try harder, but he is, he is that stubborn. So, um, That is the inner critic voice. And I think that's because he's still alive. So there's this like unresolved thing, uh, you know, and, and I think, yeah, so, so the inner critic voice is very, very loud. And it is something that I actually am talking to a therapist about, <laughs> um, but also working through in recovery also, yeah, just identifying it more and yeah, let's try to, uh, work with that voice. And, um, instead of fighting against it, you know, because, you know, I think we all have an inner critic, so we have to kind of learn to make friends with it. Um, but yeah, no, my mother, I, you know, I, I forgave her because I was becoming her, you know? Yeah. That's,
1: That is such an insightful way of looking at it, because I'm sure that isn't easy to admit um, to yourself or to others. Now, when you talk about the inner critic, you know, the funny thing about the inner critic is that it's our way of protecting ourselves, and that Mm. it's just a, it's like a really bad way of (laughs) trying to protect ourselves, but that's really the ultimate goal of the inner critic, and I suppose in, in your dad's way, he was trying in some ways to protect you too, but with the chapter that you're talking about with him, I found it so interesting that you, you share sort of an exchange of text messages and emails, I think it is, yeah, Yeah, and, and that you kind of dissect his response of how he so masterfully avoids taking responsibility and tries Uh, to explain to you that you're wrong.
2: It's unbelievable how, (laughs) oh God, how far away a delusion can carry you. It is. It's truly, see, that's when I, it's so funny because I was like, okay, we have to talk about where we are now, right? This is the book goes, it's sort of in the same format, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, you know, but throughout the context, yeah, of life and not just recovery, but also abuse and et cetera. And yeah, I didn't even, have to write that chapter because he had written it for me with uh, this lo- long, long letters of excuses, 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 just to avoid the simple words of "I'm sorry." Because he can't take, he has no humility, he can't take any responsibility. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it was gold, just gold. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the book
1: is not, um, a gentle read, that's for sure. It's, it's, it's really hard to, to hear what you went through. And, um, I think for those of us who, who are people in recovery that read it, you know, we're, we're feeling pain on both sides because, uh, you kind of, you look at your parents and think, Oh God, that could have been me had I kept going and kept Mm -hmm. drinking to that extent and on the other side feeling so terrible for what you went through. What was your writing process like? Did you have to write at home in private so that you could ugly cry as much as you needed to? (laughs) Or was it
2: just, you know, easy to write? How did that go for you? It was. It was very easy to write. It was I, I think that God wrote this book through me. Um, I Like I said, I was a little kid, and I was like, I'm writing a memoir. This is happening. Because I was going through this terrible uh, abuse, and I was like, oh, this is going to end up in a book one day. I just knew that. I knew that. I always liked to write, even when I was very, very young. And I was like, I'm writing this in, in memoir form. And then just, yeah. So uh, life unfolded, and it was just— the So when I sat down to write, the stories poured out of me. I— I barely had to work. I would say God wrote this book through me. I said, I'm going to write a book. And when I sat down to write it, it just poured, it just flowed and it felt beautiful. It felt right. It felt so right when I was writing the book. So I basically just wrote like a, I was like, okay, like, let's see what, what stories do I want to tell? And I think we remember things for a reason. I think if we have memories, there's probably a reason we're remembering them. Right. Um, that's what therapists seem to think anyway, or, uh, you know, uh, old, uh, you know, whatever, um, uh, philosophers seem to think that like, oh, we remember things for a reason. Like that's not random. Um, so uh, so I was like, okay, I want to write this story, this story, this story. And it just sort of unfolded in the narrative of like what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, because it was like stories from my young childhood stories from when I, you know, was, you know, in my early twenties and then stories from now. And I was like, oh yeah, there we go. Okay. The book comes full circle. And I just, when I would sit, I always wrote at my, uh, house and I would just write on my iPad, sometimes just laying in bed. And I didn't have a lot of crying. I think I had already done so much work, um, on, you know, healing about these things that they weren't really painful um, to revisit, um, but I did find myself going, "Okay, what I do want is for all of these stories to be true and honest." So I do, I did have to really get go there uh into in in these memories and it's like okay no we have to really remember the time that mom accused you of having a consensual sexual relationship with your father and tried to get the police to believe the same thing we have to go there so we have to remember you know like um okay she had she made a fake diary she said it was yours she handed it to a cop she was belligerent the cop did nothing um like you know like let's let's really remember that okay there were two cops and yeah that one cop he didn't even talk like like he, what was he like, he was just like, was he in training? He wasn't even, yeah. And that other cop, he, I remember he started telling us like to go like pack a bag. Cause we were going to our aunt's house. And like, why wasn't he like arresting my mother or at least making her stop drinking while she was <laughs> like all this stuff, you know, I really had to like go there and revisit it and like relive it, but it wasn't difficult. It was like, great. It was like, yes, get it out, get it out, get it out, girl, get it out on paper because other people will identify with this, you know? So I, it wasn't hard. I say, I say, start writing it. I didn't write a, I've never written a book. I don't know what I'm doing, but I managed to, you know get it out. And it was like beautiful and healing. And it's, I, I think it can help many, many other people. And so get everybody, right. I just encourage anybody to write because you don't, you don't have to be a writer. You can just sit down and write <laughs> and then you discover you're a writer. Just like I was saying earlier, like the action changes the, the brain. Like we, you know, we don't think we can. And then we sit down to do it and we're like, Oh, we can, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wonder about as you're remembering those things as an adult, especially things you hadn't thought about for a while, did you have any of those sort of aha moments of, oh my gosh, this is how I saw it as a child, but now I'm seeing it as an adult and I'm understanding it differently. Did that happen constantly or has that happened slowly over time for you? Oh,
2: um, I don't know. I think I certainly things constantly change. My perspective changes all the time, Um, depending on the day, depending on, you know, what my, yeah, what my relationship is currently like with my higher power, because I've certainly been angry at my higher power throughout recovery in different periods. Um, But, yeah, you know, the one thing is just a more understanding of my parents, less anger. That has been something that's sort of been consistent that even my dad, he's not evil. He's, he's very spiritually sick, you know? Um, and he's just unwilling to do the things that he needs to do to become better. So perspective constantly changes. It, my perspective constantly changes, but it's hard to say and point to exactly other than that, other than just that the anger seems to be diminishing and the understanding seems to be increasing. Yeah. That seems to be maybe the the one, the one thing that maybe in all aspects, not just with my relationship with my parents, but like anger decreases as understanding increases, you know, I would say <clears> that. Mm-hmm. <throat> uh-huh. That's a
1: good way of putting it. Yeah. Did, did you ever struggle with, um, I don't get a sense even in reading your book that you identified as a victim. I mean, you were a victim of abuse and, um, you know, you were an innocent uh, child in an abusive situation. So by definition, that makes you a victim. And yet um, I'm, I'm using the term as it applies to the uh, drama triangle which is victim villain hero uh-huh. and um your mother was constantly setting up a drama triangle that she was the victim you were uh-huh. the villain the cops were the hero or oh, yeah. right um oh, yeah. and and then the way that manipulative people manipulate uh, others is then they take that drama triangle and they swing it around so then they'll say uh Oh, no, you've been victimized, but I'm the hero and that, you know, your friend is the villain and I'm going to be your savior and I'm going to fix this for you. And so you believe them. Mm-hmm. And then and maybe for you that would be like when your mom was throwing you a birthday party and uh-huh. she was going to be the big hero and throw you yeah. this great party. But by the end of the night, she would swing that drama triangle around and, and either be the victim herself because uh, you've done something to offend her or the villain in that, you know, she's going to ruin your night for you. So right. it's that constantly shifting uh, drama triangle is what keeps family dynamics or personal dynamics drama fueled. Um, so... I'm wondering, and I think that sometimes people manage that by holding on to, for dear life in a corner, whatever it is, you know, like, um, they might become, uh, and I think that's where codependency and narcissism come into as coping skills. You know, you're just holding on for dear life (laughs) in this coping skill. Anyway, what I'm wondering is, you know, did you struggle to give that up at all, to give up? your corner in the triangle as victim and see yourself, um, and, and free yourself from just that as being part of your identity and, you know, cutting off from your past in that way. How does, how do you go about healing that? Do you sometimes fall back into it
2: and see it as part of your identity or I don't yeah. know, how does that feel for you? I, I, Definitely when I was a kid felt like a victim, because like you said, I was, I mean, I was, I was completely powerless to change my circumstances. So I had, I did a lot of crying, (laughs) you know, I, I, I had no way to get out of, of this abusive situation. Um, except to occasionally escape to my grandmother's, which thank God for her. Right. You know, and she's the the angel throughout the book and she was the angel throughout my life. And if it hadn't been for her, I don't know that I would have survived. But, you know, I I guess naturally I stopped seeing myself as a victim as I got older because I became more powerful. You know, Um, I was able to change my circumstances. And so therefore I just wasn't a victim anymore. I was more, I was a powerful being. Now I was a, a. I was able to change my circumstances. So I did, I got far away from, you know, my home as quickly as I could. I went, I left, I went, went away to college and then I, you know, moved to LA. I was like, I gotta get out of here. But, <laughs> you know, um, so I became less of a victim like through action, you know, and, uh, but I, and I try very, you know, I'm very conscious to not ever look at my life that as from the perspective of a victim now, because I'm, I'm not a victim We're I, you know, and we're not victims. We are, we all have the power to change things or, you know, unless we're, you know, abuse little children, then we don't. But, um, if you're an adult, you're more powerful than you think. And, um, yeah. And I, so it, it happened naturally. I didn't Try to become less of a victim. I just became more aware and more able to do for myself, and so therefore I was less of a victim. Um, But yeah, I know what you're saying. I've never heard of that triangle before. I like that. Yeah, and like my mother. Oh man, how she liked to play the the victim role. Oh my god. And so I think that grossed me out too. As a kid, you know, right. I talk about that. I talk about that in the book too about how she was like oh constantly you know playing the role of victim, her favorite role, and how that that grossed me out. I was like oh god, you're so just. Dis- you're just so pathetic. And so I didn't want to be like that in any way. So maybe that subconsciously, yeah, like... Um, part of it. Yeah, yeah. And you were so
1: wise because you were like five and thinking, <laughs> <laughs> seeing well, through it. Well, yeah. now... Well, she was such a bad actress. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> And as you say all of that, I'm reminded of the, the second half of the Carp- Carpman drama triangle, which is that the way out of it um, is that you you refuse your corner by stepping towards the other person so because you've you've sort of understood your mother a little bit or you know you have some compassion for her even though you don't approve of her behavior you still yeah. you know you have some compassion for her that that's how you def- it's like pulling the tent pole like if you think of a tent as a triangle stepping towards the other person pulls the the pole out of the tent and deflates the triangle because there's no more drama if you're not playing your role. Ah, yeah. And I guess that's how we heal is by stepping out of it and, and refusing to participate in it.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. You said early oh. on, um, here's a question for you. You said that you you were basically, you needed a drug from the get-go <laughs> and, um, and I'm wondering, like, do you, has has sobriety helped you heal the need for that drug or are you finding that you're filling that need in other ways?
2: Oh God. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Um, my friend, Kristen says, Oh, it's like whack-a-mole with this sucker, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> you get sober, you take away your drugs and alcohol and then say uh, something up, something else pops up like sugar, like food, like uh, codependency, like whatever it is, like Netflix. I mean, really, you know? So, Oh, certainly. But like, so here's the thing though. Uh, the way, yes, I do find ways to check out. Um, I still like the, because, you know, drugs and alcohol helped me unwind. I didn't even know it was doing that because I was like, no, I'm a productive stoner. Um, but w- now I can say in hindsight, everything is 2020. Um, and when I, uh, I, I have been years sober and gone, Oh, that's what drugs and alcohol did for me. Oh, because now I'm I'm anxious and I don't want to feel anxious and I don't have a way to not feel anxious. I drank and used no matter what. So it wasn't like I was like, I'm having a bad day. I smoke pot. I'm having a better day. It wasn't linear like that. It wasn't easy. It wasn't clean. It wasn't neat. It is cunning, baffling, powerful. So I use no matter what. But then when I take when I took away the drugs and alcohol and I was left with natural feelings that occur whenever they feel like it and I wanted to change them, I realized, Oh, I can't, <laughs> you know, but I can by yeah. binging Netflix, by eating sugar. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I gained 15 pounds. Like the day I got sober or like really, really quickly. And uh, like, I've been, I've managed to take off most of it, but like, um, uh, yeah, so things pop up. Um, but, Honestly, they're, they're small potatoes compared to be, you know, being a, like, they like, you know, get, go ahead and get sober. Like, don't worry about if you're going to gain 15 pounds, you'll lose it. Like, don't worry about if you, you know, um, suddenly decide you're going to, oh yeah, caffeine. That's another thing. Um, okay. So, you know, you suddenly want, you know, a third cup of coffee, just have it. And you'll, you'll work on that later. Nothing's as bad. <laughs> as the drugs and alcohol, they say you eliminate things in the order in which they're killing you. So, uh, yeah. So yeah, but other things pop up certainly. Um, but And it's funny because the, 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 it seems like with each passing day, the, the more I see, the more I'm unpeeling the onion, you know, I'm like, oh, I see this now. Oh, I didn't know that about myself. It's just like a constant revealing of the true self, um, just through being sober and yeah, we'll find other ways to escape, but who cares, right? Like as long as we're not drinking and using, we're, we're winning, we're doing fine, you know? So, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think as long as we're willing to keep working on things, that's that's the other thing, right? I mean the old progress, not perfection idea of like, hey, we don't have to like fix everything all at once. We just right. have to be willing to keep working on things as they come up for us. Right, right. Um, you mentioned that you're in LA, so what's it like to be sober in LA? I couldn't
2: ask for a, a more you know, supportive network of of people you know LA has a great uh, sober network um most i would say most people are sober that's not true but there is such a large sober community here um there are over there are i think there, uh well when we're not in covid 3000 meetings a week um in Los Angeles area so if you don't like a meeting you can go to a different meeting um there are so many strong sober people, uh, so many young sober people. Um, you know, it's not just a bunch of old people in a basement. It's you know very young people. I had a I had a sponsor who got sober when she was sixteen, um, and she's still sober, and she's in her thirties. And you know, uh, it's just it, it's all walks of life. It's so supportive. I you can I have said so many things in meetings and gotten nods from people. Uh, I never get judgment. Um, there's a beautiful place that just got closed down because of COVID called bliss cafe. That was my home group. That's where I got sober on fountain and, uh, vine. And I'm sure, you know, anybody in LA, every, everybody knows about bliss cafe. Um, and now it's, it's gone because of COVID and that's so sad. Um, uh, but you know, it, it, and then. Uh, but now with the zoom meetings, you know, it's still fine. It's still strong. Um, it, it, it's, it's weird. It is weird though, with COVID doing the zoom meetings. And, um, but I, I tell people, um, cause I, answer, I, I answer phones for, uh, for central office. Um, and people call and they're like, well, you know, I want to get sober. How do I do that now with no meetings? And I say, you know, it's less intimidating to do that now um, because the Zoom meetings, you don't even have to show your face. Like, be a newcomer now because you can go into a meeting and just listen, which is kind of what you should do in the beginning anyway. I mean, yes, you should share, too. But, like, become a sponge. And it's its easier to become a sponge from the comfort of your own home so that you can ugly cry and no one sees you <laughs> if that's what you want. Although I would would say for me, I was happy to go into a room and ugly cry because then I, everybody came up and hugged me afterwards. And I really wanted that. But, um, you know, it, but it, you know, it, there's no reason to postpone getting sober now. Cause God, thank God I'm sober now, like in COVID times. Cause if I were left, if somebody, if the government was paying me money to stay at home and shelter in place and not talk to anyone, I would have all the drugs and alcohol and I would die, you know? So I'm really, really grateful to be sober at this point. Um, Um, And I would say, yeah, it's L.A. is a great place to get sober. I've heard New York is also like these big metropolis cities. It just seems like there's just all walks of life, you know, so so many different people to identify with so many people that you think nobody shares your experience or your story. And then you like look to your right and look to your left. And there are two people who totally do and they're totally different, you know, and it's so yeah, it's it's a great place to get sober for sure.
1: So you're quite active in a program um, that is a 12-step program, and one of the traditions of that program is anonymity. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk about your decision to shed your anonymity and how you're managing that and still managing to, you know, keep the program working for you and stay aligned with what you think is important there.
2: Well, I chose to come out of the closet right away because I wanted the accountability. I had already, um, uh, dipped my toes in the water of AA as well. And I, I lasted 10 days and then I lasted 11 days. These stories are in the book too. Um, and then I did, I had a bad day and I decided I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I knew, and I, I need accountability. I am somebody who, um, uh, you know, I care a lot about what other people think, um, call it a flaw or whatever, but it did, it can save it saved my ass too, because I've, I've, uh, I told everybody I'm, you know, I'm so like, I posted like a 30 day chip or something like that on Facebook or something. And I, cause I wanted that accountability. I want to make it difficult to leave. You know, I don't want it to be so easy. Um, so that was my decision. And I had a, a sponsor early on tell me, well, anonymity, you know, it's just basically, So the basic, simplest way to explain it is you tell whoever you want if you're, you know, about yourself, but we don't talk about others in in the meeting. So unless you and I were at that meeting, we don't talk about the third person in that meeting. You know, we don't – you can't say, oh, so-and-so is – in 12 step program. So, and so, you know, no, 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 we don't do that. But if you want to tell people, you know, that's, that's your business. And I, and she understood the whole like accountability thing. Um, and yeah, and so, so I, that's what I did for, for the accountability. Cause I want to make it really difficult for me to ever go out. Cause I know my crazy brain wants to take me out. It has tried, you know, I've felt like I've been holding on to sobriety by a string at certain points because life happens and life is difficult. It's difficult to navigate without, um, drugs and alcohol sometimes, sometimes, you know, because it's not that staying sober is hard, it's that life is, can be hard and challenging and we want um, a relaxer (laughs) and we want our old relaxer that used to be our best friend, you know? And then I I have to make it really hard to, to go back to that best friend. You know, it's like, don't text that guy. Don't text that guy kind of thing. And it's like, I have to make it really hard, you know, to not text that guy, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I totally understand that.
1: I can totally understand that. Um I have one last question for you and and if you don't want to go there that's okay. Yeah. But you mentioned that your mother died of alcoholism and mm-hmm. um the guests on this show, you know, we're we're always fortunate enough to hear the stories of of those of us who managed to you know write our course before addiction killed us. Yeah. And um I heard an expression that really has stayed with me, which is that your disease wants you dead, but it'll settle for making you miserable. Mm. Your book is mostly about your mom's misery um, and and yours um, by extension. Um, But I wonder, I know you weren't with your mom as she passed away, but can you talk a little bit about what happens when someone dies of their alcoholism it is not a gentle end and i wonder if you can just talk about just some of the long-term health implications and and how the body shuts down slowly from alcohol use over time
2: you know, it's. I was in LA, um, and I had been living here for years. Uh, when I, I I got a call from my nana, from my mom's mom, and she she was crying, which I had never heard her do. And uh, this is a story in the book too. And it's, you know, she she says uh, she said um, your mom is dying. You have to come home. And I. I was like, what? I was like, oh, she's just being dramatic. She was always in the hospital with some alcohol induced malady. Like she's fine. She's just, oh, she's just looking for attention. (laughs) And she was like, no, she's going to die. You have to come home. And I was like, okay. And I, I just was like annoyed at how inconvenient this was. And I didn't, I think I didn't believe it. I think I was like, she's cause she's always pulling some crap, you know? And, you know, and I was like, Oh, fine. So I finally go home. I I went home the next night. I took a red eye the next night and she died while I was in the air. And that, you know, when we went to her... Now, I had seen her two years before that at my grandmother's funeral. Um, that had been the last time I had gone home. And she looked haggard. She looked terrible. But I did not realize that she was that close to death. But now looking back, you know, hindsight is hindsight is twenty twenty. I can see, oh, yeah, why didn't I know that? Of course, she's, she's barely got a few years left, if that. Um, she uh, was bloated. None of my mother was always thin. She was so bloated that she had to wear sweatpants. Um, all of the blood vessels were broken in her face. She didn't wear makeup. I I believe probably makeup couldn't have even stayed on her face. Like that's how like pasty and, um, horrible her skin was. Her hair had been, she used to be a, uh, uh, bleach blonde, like a you know, she would dye her hair. She had given up on that. Um, it was just, uh, like an inch of gray and then just morphed into like a sad Brown. Um, she didn't even brush her hair. It was like, she couldn't even be bothered to do that. She had completely given up on her appearance. She like, um, but it's not just about appearance. It was really about like, like you say, like her misery, like how, how she had given up internally, you know, a long time before that. Um, and, uh, she, yeah. Um, when we went to her house, then after she died, it was so sad. It was like a hoarder. She was like a hoarder. And just, just from me, it was just, it was years and years of neglect, which is what her, her body and her being was. It was years and years of neglect, neglect, like avoidance, I, avoiding dealing with what's really going on will eventually kill you. And like her house was a reflection of that. You know, she, it was just so like, there was a hole worn into the seat of her kitchen table chair, which, was her post. She would sit at the kitchen table and drink uh, and drink and smoke cigarettes. And it, it, there was a worn hole in her chair from overuse, you know, um, just the, the dishes weren't done. The, the, you know, the garbage was overflowing. Um, like nothing had ever been cleaned. It was just so sad. It was just a reflection of, of her insides, you know? And so I, and you know, it was, I, my dad was just as surprised my dad was so surprised that she was dying. Like, I think nobody knows. And I did not know. I did not know that, uh, you know, (laughs) I did not know that alcoholism could kill you. I know that sounds crazy, but alcoholism will kill you. Um, and it just, it happened. It's sort of like it happened really, really, it happens slowly. It was like a slow decline and then boom, a real quick drop down, you know? Um, like I said, like she had me when she was 20 and she was a nightly blackout drinker until, you know, and that's all I knew her as and then I moved away when I was 24. So she was still So for 24 years, she was just a nightly blackout drunk who was like slowly deteriorating, but it was slow, but steady, you know, um, slowly giving up whatever. And then the last, so then I had been out here for four years or something when she died and then a very quick drop down. So for those four years that I didn't see her, it was a very quick drop down into just real like I said like just bloat and not able to even take I don't think she was able to take care of herself anymore oh I do remember when I went home to see her uh oh no when I went home for my grandmother's funeral and I saw her um I uh her her speech was affected as well she had um what is it wet wet I don't know if it was wet brain, but her, um, she was always slurring and she wasn't drunk. She never drank during the day. Um, but she, so her speech had been affected as well. And I was like, I remember I was with my boyfriend at the time. And when she left, I was like, did you hear her voice? Like that's from years of alcohol abuse, but still I did not know that it was going to kill her, but it it did eventually. Yeah. So, yeah, Yeah. I'm so sorry
1: for that. Um, Let's end on a happier note then. So tell me tell me what's coming up for you that you're excited about. Tell me, even in these crazy days of pandemic and lockdown and and um, all that's happening in the world, tell me about some good things in your life that are <laughs> the, the blessings of sobriety that you talked about.
2: Uh well, I I love this pan. Uh, no, you can't say I love this pandemic. People are dying. That's terrible. What I love is, um, you know, that I I have now been able to give. I, I got laid off because of the pandemic, and you know, I'm getting unemployment. So I've been being paid basically. To to uh pursue my creative dreams for you know since uh mid march <laughs> and that has been such a blessing so i love this uh lockdown i it has that's so i i published the book so what's coming up is the audiobook um i am finishing editing it hopefully this week and then i will release it it takes um it can take like 30 days for um audible to approve hopefully they approve it it's already been rejected once i had to re-record it that was a whole to do but it's okay i learned how to use audacity um so, yeah, so the audiobook should be coming up hopefully within the next month. But, you know, check Amazon. Um, so hope maybe even sooner. Who knows? Um, that's coming up. And then I'm starting my second book, which is going to be mostly focused on my sister. It's going to be called Voicemails from My Sister. And now my sister, who is she plays a minor role in Down the Rabbit Hole. Um, but she she suffered more than I did, I would say, as a result of uh, my mother using drugs and drinking uh, while she was pregnant. My sister has schizoaffective disorder so, um, she, she was developmentally disabled as a result of being abused in utero. So uh, that's what this book is going to be about the next, the next book. So, and I thought I should write an entire series actually about every member of my family. Then I can do like letters from my father and journals from my mother or journals that my mother wrote or something like that. Because I have, um, yeah, when I went and I, I decluttered her house, I found a lot of my mother's old writing. My mother was a writer and, but like, you know, a lot of unfinished projects, but a lot of started projects and I, I saved quite a bit. Um, and she was really, really good too. It's sad cause she was very gifted. She was like, um, uh, she, she was like quite, I found right, uh, writing when she, that she wrote when she was 13 and it's very, very good. So yeah. So who knows? So who knows what the future holds, but the next book is voicemails from my sister. So I'm excited about that. Kate Russell, how can our listeners find you, connect with you, and get your book? Uh, so katerussellauthor.com is my website. Please subscribe. So it's K-A-T-E-R-U-S-S-E-L-L, author, A-U-T-H-O-R.com. Um, my book is Down the Rabbit Hole, A Memoir of Abuse, Addiction, and Recovery. And it's available on Amazon in both Kindle and paperback and soon-to-be audiobook. And I narrated it myself, so narrated by author yay
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kate, thanks for being here today and thank you for all of your candor and for sharing your story with our listeners
2: thank you so much yay thank you so much this was so fun and listeners check the show
1: notes for a link to kate's website and i guess that's it for this week i'm glad to be back i hope you're all doing well until next time please do take good care
0: own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. Strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see the old, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free power oh, head you don't have to shout it out on Main Street to you don't need to whisper to confession in ears. the person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror and the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm I didn't Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you yes. said i free When you say Just want to be free.